0: Five, four,
1: three, two, one. But who's counting, right?
2: And his name is Major.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital.
2: Major, fantastic.
1: It's the
3: takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, I major garrett major that's nonsense
1: and you should know better is major out of the doghouse (laughs) the answer is yes
2: welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week i'm major garrett this is the takeout however you find this show thanks for finding it podcast our early adopters radio stations around the country cbs news streaming potus channel 124 sirius xm radio however you find us thanks for hanging out thanks for getting the vibe we're back out and about i hope you are too Chef Jeff's is our host restaurant this week. Full disclosure, for those of you who want me to do the full disclosure thing, yes, the chain is owned by the husband of Nora O'Donnell, who's the managing editor and anchor of the CBS Evening News. That's not why we're here. We were here when this place was called something different, Café Deluxe. We're here because it's close to the CBS Bureau. Sometimes that matters a lot in Major Garrett (laughs) world and the takeout world. So, dear audience, I told you three weeks ago that we would focus considerably on the story in Ukraine. We still will. We're going to take a break this week, but I want to let you know next week, David Miliband is already booked for this show, former high-ranking official in the British government and now the head of the International Rescue Committee. After that, the next week, we're going to have the Polish Ambassador of the United States. So we're sticking on Ukraine. You know I believe it's the biggest story in the world. It's no less true this week than it will be next week. But we're taking a one-week break from Ukraine to talk about things that have been playing out in America of nearly equal significance. One, the January 6th investigation, revelations emanating from that, and other things around Capitol Hill related to January 6th. Two of my newer CBS colleagues are on the show with us this week. The people you've seen on television, I want you to get to know them a little bit in the show today. Robert Costa and Scott McFarland. Great to have you with us. Sorry for that heavy, heavy preamble I had to go through, but... Some things have to be
1: explained. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Nice to be here.
2: We'll be ordering momentarily because what we do in the show at a restaurant. The waiter, I'm not sure, Arden, if we know who it is, but they'll approach the desk forthwith and we'll order and have some lunch. So, Robert Costa, uh, anyone watching CBS or reading our website in the last week and a half have seen breaking news alerts created by you and a colleague of yours in the book writing world and a sort of co-collaborator in much of your work. Bob Woodward of the Washington Post, summarize what you've learned and what its importance is in the larger understanding of the Trump White House on January 6th.
3: Major, it's a pleasure to be here. Love this show. And so, look, we've done two stories in the past week. Number one, in brief, we discovered that the House January 6th committee has obtained text messages, 29 in total, between Ginny Thomas, the spouse of a Supreme Court justice, Clarence Thomas, and then Chief of Staff at the White House, Mark Meadows. And what matters about these text messages is that Ginny Thomas, at times, is passing along conspiracy theories to the White House Chief of Staff. She's advocating for Sidney Powell, a controversial lawyer, to be the, quote, lead in the face of the Trump legal effort. And you also see uh, Ginny Thomas saying at different points, that she's talking to a quote best friend about her her views of the election and we wonder if the best friend is clarence thomas we haven't confirmed that or not and we've re- reached out to the thomases repeatedly for comment they have not offered any clarity and this has caused democrats at the least to say there could be some questions about uh, the the justices independence and uh, integrity even when it comes to cases related to the election or january 6th second story uh, we discovered that the committee is looking at a seven hour and 37 minute gap uh, about January 6 and then President Trump's activities that day. We've obtained phone records that show his calls in the morning, his calls in the evening, some of his movements that day. But we don't know, officially speaking, who we called between around 11, 17 a.m. on January 6 and the early evening. Why does this matter? Because that's the most crucial period of the attack.
2: And Scott, what has been the reaction on Capitol Hill to this reporting? And like revelations though these are the biggest so far it seems to me i think that is not a contestable assertion from the january 6th investigation what has been the hill buzz it's been noticed
1: (laughs) uh, to put it mildly Um, and it's not just by duly noted as they say and, and i think what strikes me most about that gap that bob reported is Think of the things that happened during that gap. 12 12.41 p.m. roughly is when Ashley Babbitt was shot. 1 p.m. in the 2 p.m. hours, when the fiercest of that Game of Thrones-style fighting was happening. 6 p.m. is when the curfew was issued in the District of Columbia and the police finally got an upper hand. There were some seminal American moments that happened during a gap in which we don't know who the president was talking to who he called or who was called? what his him. frame of mind was. What he was thinking and what he was instructing. So it's not just that it was seven hours. It was seven hours of American history. Unprecedented, horrific American history.
2: With consequences, and you did a penetrating story this week about the spouse of one of the Metropolitan Police officers who some period of time after January 6th, deeply traumatized, deeply, by outward observational methods, depressed took his own life talk
1: our audience through that story and who you talk to the scenes we saw that traumatized so many americans my kids included it it traumatized the people on the ground by orders of magnitude more four police officers died by suicide in the seven months after january 6th four then we add the dozens of police injuries physical that we can see and lay eyes on mangled feet busted shoulders broken thumbs severe head trauma but for the four officers who died by suicide there has been this difference their families have noticed in how they've been honored or how tribute has been paid to these officers we saw officer brian sicknick who died of multiple strokes after assault on the front lines lie in state and get tribute In in the u.s capitol and we see the officers who died by suicide get a different response. And one of the widows of one of those officers, Jeffrey Smith of the D.C. Police Department, not only fought to get him line-of-duty death benefits, arguing that he suffered a physical head injury and that he, with no history of mental illness or depression, until he returned home from work January 6th, suffered that day and it led to his death. She secured the line of duty death benefits and is now pushing legislation with bipartisan co-sponsors to get this for law enforcement officers of any rank, local, state, or federal, nationwide. Bob, I want to ask you about something I've said almost since January 6th occurred, which is this.
2: This story will never get better. It will only get worse. Meaning what we learn about what led up to it, who participated, and why will only tell us darker things about that moment in history. Do you agree?
3: Well, it seems to be the case, no doubt about it. I remember when Bob Woodward and I found this document called the Eastman Memo. John Eastman, Mm -hmm. a conservative lawyer, outlining six points in two pages about how to essentially overturn an election by recommending that alternate electors are selected, having the vice president walk away from the lectern and cause a constitutional crisis. And we thought to ourselves we at the time and this that, was for the book this is for the book peril that we, we bestseller
2: ladies and gentlemen well thank you
3: uh, but it was important to discover this document because you realize this wasn't just talk it was a plan and the more we keep learning even after the book was published and we keep reporting here at cbs news is that this was a multi-front effort where with trump pulling every possible lever of power uh, he was pressuring state governments. He was pressuring the U.S. Congress. He was pressuring the Department of Justice. He was pressuring his own aides. So you have legislative branch, executive branch, and now we see with the Ginny Thomas text messages, the White House at the very least was rubbing
2: up against the judiciary. Rubbing up against the judiciary. And it's important to note that in these text messages, Ginny Thomas essentially is saying to the White House chief of staff, this election was stolen and you must not concede or submit That is the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice. when She has to have full knowledge because President Trump said it on the morning after the election, about 2.30 a.m., we're taking this to the Supreme Court. The path of this is inevitable, and she's weighing in with the White House Chief of Staff. Ginny Thomas has every right, through her First
3: Amendment rights, like any of us, to speak her mind and to be a political activist. She's been a political activist without hiding it for decades now. Yes,
2: indeed.
3: The question is, was she interacting... In an appropriate way or not And it's not for me to judge that right. With the executive branch With the chief of staff of the White House As you said, 2.30 a.m. on November 4th Trump goes in front of reporters and says We're going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court And then she begins texting Meadows Based on these records obtained by the committee
2: Talk about guardrails and pressures against them uh, That is the topic, among others, this week here on The Takeout Scott McFarlane, Bob Costa, my guests were at Chef Jeff's Luncheon Route as is segment two see you in a second
3: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the Coast Guard we think it's all of the above and more you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
4: with Major
2: Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. You know, one of the nauseating things that reporters sometimes do in Washington is tell each other how good they are. It is nauseating, I readily admit that. It is also sometimes true. Nauseating things can occasionally be true, and in this case, it's true. Scott and Bob are Cracker
1: Jack reporters. I'm just telling you that right now, and
2: it's my pleasure to have them both with us. Scott, you want to button up something said in the first segment?
1: Yeah, I'm going through time so quickly. Ashley Babbitt, 2.41, not 12.41. Right. uh, Mental note.
2: For those who are keeping very close track of that, and it was a very important moment in that day and in American history, because American history will always look back on that day and take it apart bit by bit, and that's an important part of it. So, Scott, when you talk to members of Congress, this does seem to me to be uncharted territory. What are the guardrails around interactions for people in the Supreme Court and pending litigation? I mean, all of this is completely uncharted. We never anticipated an attack on the Capitol to stop, first slow, then stop the certification of a presidential election. And so everything that flows from it is also uncharted waters. Yep. And then you throw into this, oh, there was conversations. Wait, with a Supreme Court justice's spouse and the White House chief of staff. When lawmakers try to unpack this, and they try to think about guardrails or the assertion thereof, what do they land? What do they come up with?
1: Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Thursday infused this debate with a little more energy by, you know, alluding to Jenny Thomas, Justice Thomas's wife, as being a supporter of a coup, in the speaker's words. So. This is not a dispute or a debate or a controversy that's going to die down in the next few days. And I think, I think ultimately what we've noticed in the last 15 months is the toxicity that permeated our politics before January 6th has grown exponentially since. And you could just feel it walking through the hallways. You know, the, the, the tenuous relationships that existed between Republicans and Democrats, especially in the House, have become all the more fragile, mm-hmm. if not non-existent. I right. feel like the toxicity is almost something you could grab and touch. Because, and I've talked to members about this, and perhaps they've shared this with you, and
2: some have even shared it at this microphone, the idea of my safety being a given on Capitol Hill is no longer true. And so this isn't about, from their perspective,
1: policy disagreements anymore. It feels primal to them. Yeah, I mean, think of the sight you see if you walk through the second floor of the Capitol right now. You walk to the House chamber, and you see metal detectors off the floor. A new incarnation of the look of the second floor of the Capitol since January sixth. It says members of Congress don't feel physically safe with each other. Mm-hmm.
2: Right now, metal detectors have been there for a long time, but members could walk around them. But they're
1: in the chamber now, right. and they're I mean, in, the in chamber. that members-only area. You still right. got to walk through a metal detector to see your and, own. And I'm glad you emphasized that point. winning right. wearing uh, colleagues, right.
2: It, and, and Bob and your travels on Capitol Hill as well. It does feel primal, doesn't it? It feels different in the sense of how members think about each other in relationship to one another. I, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of... I don't want to over-dramatize it, but it's, it's there in a way I detect that it wasn't pre-January oh,
3: sure, 6th. certainly. I mean, the, uh, the pandemic and January 6th coupled together has changed the culture. But to your point about the Supreme Court, what is striking and I didn't really realize this until I started digging into it, is that there's not a code of ethics for the Supreme right. Court. There are certain things they can't do, and Congress has a, an oversight role to a point. You can impeach a Supreme Court justice mm-hmm. if, if it gets to that point in terms of severe breaches of conduct. But the Supreme Court, unlike federal judges, doesn't have some kind of code of ethics. Right. Federal judges do. Uh, and Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, a Democrat, for example, told me in recent days, look, this has to change. There's no why do federal judges have all these different rules but Supreme Court justices do not in terms of disclosure and what they can do?
2: And for the audience's benefit, I want to let you know that for some period of time there have been those on the left who have thought that Ginny Thomas was too active in Republican slash conservative circles around Washington, D.C. And I've always, and many on the ethics sort of watchdog side of the ledger here in Washington, have said too much was being made out of that because Washington is a professional city. Lots of spouses have interlocking jobs, and many couples in this very powerful city and power-driven city have relationships that create a dividing line between what spouses do and don't talk about in terms of their official conduct. That's happened for this town for years. I respect that. I know people who fall into that category, and I know they're very aware of these dividing lines, and they work it out. That is not a new story in Washington. And... We don't want to be quick to assume the worst out of someone who might have, in fact, done the hard work of within this relationship creating these barriers. Because people do it all the time. I don't know what Ginny Thomas said to Clarence Thomas. And I'm not suggesting I do, but this... And I want to go back to this, Bob, because in the text, he said, my best friend. Which is something they have used in public to describe their relationship to one another. I'm not saying it's a tell, but you can't ignore it, either.
3: You can't ignore it, and... I don't like to guess as a reporter, but it, it it begs for clarity. Who was she talking to at the time she was interacting with Mark Meadows? And Justice Thomas hasn't said anything yet about the nature of his knowledge of his wife's communications with the Trump White House. And, and also whether he knew, if he knew she was communicating with Mark Meadows, then did he know that her text messages could be part of the records he ruled upon?
2: And talk about that ruling and talk about how in the course of some of the, well, all the litigation that has come before the court, Justice Thomas is in a kind of distinct category.
3: These stories I've worked on in recent days with Woodward are interlocking in a sense because Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows involve the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is why these records were turned over to the committee from the National Archives, even if they're limited and have a seven-hour, 37-minute gap. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court said Trump may want to block these records from going to the committee, but on an 8-to-1 order, they said they should go to the committee.
2: Who was the dissent? Justice Thomas. Right. Now, Scott, has there been any discernible attitudinal shift in the last week among Republicans with these revelations? Or do they still sort of want to keep an arm's length distance if possible from january 6th and still denounce the committee as sort of overly partisan from their
1: perspective and therefore illegitimate at some level don't want to touch this conversation they don't want to touch it. they don't want questions on january 6th they don't invite my inquiries to talk about and they skitter away kind of when they arise and let's look at the political hand they're holding they think they have a straight flush for november And Mm -hmm. why would you introduce a game that has wild cards in it if you're already holding a straight flush? Mm -hmm. And that's a variable they don't want politically.
2: But, Scott, it seems to me um, this thing's coming. The public hearings are coming. That's going to happen sometime this summer. I'm not sure if the committee's decided exactly what the dates are. May is the latest estimate. May is the latest estimate. So this thing is coming. You're not going to be able to not have that on television. You know it's going to be covered. You may create it. try to create an alternate
1: narrative but it's common what they've done at least the party leadership is try to paint the January 6th committee as a political operation so that when the report comes out they can say this is the report of a political operation and their constituency uh, is their constituency I mean their constituency that elected them um, is a Republican constituency that is consuming news out of a media silo mm-hmm. in some large number. And, and prone to believe the worst about Democrats if Republicans say so. Here's the one inescapable truth for Republicans. This is the only story I've ever covered. Not only, I haven't been doing this as long as others. But the only story I've ever covered where interest and engagement has increased with time. Right. The farther we get away from the event the normal muscle memory of news is for there to be declining interest. This is not one of those cases. I mean, the engagement I get with each report has grown from where it was in March and April of 2021. The engagement and interest in new developments, new twists, and eventually new reports from the January 6th committee for the greater part of America is going to increase. And Bob, in the last the 45 seconds we have to go before our next break,
2: Republicans reacted to your reporting in what kind of way, based when you talked to them on the, on the other side of it? Were they shocked?
3: Uh, well, I think a lot of them were surprised to see the gap. They were surprised to see the text messages between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows. But at the same time, you've seen a forceful defense of Justice Thomas and his integrity from people like Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell. And, and they believe this is political warfare, but at the end of the day, we're still just reporting out the facts. Mm-hmm. This is what we're trying to figure out about what happened, what's the truth, and we still only have part of the picture.
2: We still only have part of the picture, and it will be filled in with reporting, disclosures, depositions, and the like. I'm Major Garrett Scott McFarlane, Bob Koster with us, segment three of The Takeout, and lunch, I hope, in the not-too-distant future.
3: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
4: with Major Garrett.
2: Welcome back to The Takeout. Scott McFarlane, Bob Costa, are our special guests. We are at Chef Jeff's. Lunch is en route. Trevor promises he brought us some Diet Coke. Happy to have that. Um, so, Scott, uh, when you think about and anticipate and get out on a limb here a little bit, because this audience wants to know, what do you think these public hearings are going to look like? What, 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 is, this, is this going to be like a thundering moment for the country, do you
1: sense? Do you anticipate? The initial plan for these hearings, uh, based on our interviews with the members of the committee, was to be part revelatory, to show what they found, and part still inquisitive, to do more questioning, to do more oversight, to do more investigating. So a bit of a hybrid, where we learn a little bit more, but we also show some of our hand. I think where the calendar has gone, if they're going to do this by May, which seems like... A piece of optimism, mm-hmm. they may be more towards revelatory now. Let's show you our work product. Let's mm-hmm. give you a public displaying visual, mm-hmm. audio, and substantive. What did we find in our investigation? I don't think there's time left to do more intake. And, and I want to let the audience know something. This is not the
2: only time or the only place in which Congress has peered into January 6th or... Machinations within the Trump White House or the Trump Justice Department. The Senate Judiciary Committee did a look into this and produced two reports. One, a Democratic report and a Republican report. And the January 6th committee found more things, but it wasn't as if the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't find anything. They found lots of memos and things back and forth inside the Trump White House, trying to pressure the Trump Justice Department, suggesting that people in position might be fired unless they complied with Trump's decisions. Well, What I found interesting about that process was, in the Republican report, they didn't dispute any of the facts surfaced by the Senate Democrats on the Judiciary Committee. They just said it wasn't as bad as you're saying it is, because all those things that sound scary actually never happened, so Trump wasn't all that bad. So, if you're really curious about this topic, there are other things you can find that were done in a bipartisan way with two different reports— but no disagreement on the central
1: facts. Also, the Senate Rules Committee did investigate the failures of security mm-hmm. at the Capitol that day in collaboration with the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Now, Initially, the January 6th committee said it's also going to look into failures of police and planning and intelligence. That feels like it might be a little redundant because it has been covered, including recently. Yeah. That's also supposed to be a component.
2: And when people hear about that, and this is one of the talking points former President Trump uses with some regularity. Well, it's not my fault. They didn't secure the place. If they'd done their job, this never would have happened. Evaluate that based on what has been found and disclosed.
1: Top Republican on the House Administration Committee has been saying that a lot lately. Um, there's, there's the reality of who was in charge of security on January 6, 2021. Appointees of the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader. That's a Republican Senate Majority Leader and a Democratic. Speaker of the House. So the politics of how you can criticize the security leadership at the Capitol is lost on me.
2: And uh, Bob, let's also do a couple of things that will helpfully remind the audience. The permit was for a rally at the Ellipse. The permit in no way authorized any walking in any direction, let alone to the U.S. Capitol. So it seems sort of strange to me for the former president to say, well, you should have known they were coming when only he was the one who sent them there, and the permit for the rally he was speaking at did not permit a movement to the Capitol.
3: That's right, and the Department of Justice is pursuing cases of sedition against those people who participated. So it's, it's, it's quite serious what happened.
2: As well as, and this is something that's come up in the last couple of days, it appears the Justice Department is looking even more deeply... Than had has been previously disclosed. They may have always been on this case, into the financial structures in and around January sixth. And we've seen
3: the committee focus on this as well, interviewing people who participated in the planning of the rally at the Ellipse, and it's all kind of interwoven with each other. I remember being outside of the Willard Hotel on January fifth at ten and eleven o'clock at night, and the Proud Boys and the oath keepers were there. They were playing music. They were fighting with police officers. And I, I circled the hotel, and they were all in red hats. They were walking around, screaming, yelling, elated. What I didn't find out till later is that Trump was listening to this whole mob opening the door of the Oval Office to hear the sounds of the music and the cries in the streets. And they were all there preparing for this raucous, wonderful day they thought they could block the certification of an election.
2: Bless you. Sorry. And in the conversations that have since been revealed in court papers, it's quite clear that those participants were talking to each other about doing precisely that. It's not uncertain at all, according to recorded conversations, what their intent was and what their aim was in coming to Washington, some of them armed and some of them placing people and other arms
1: nearby just in case 770 cases as of this moment the ones you watch closest are the conspiracy cases the seditious conspiracy cases bob just referenced but the other conspiracy cases where people were accused of coming here with a plan ready for some type of battle and action here's the new twist in the last few weeks the justice department has now charged somebody specifically accused of funding Mm -hmm. this they have a defendant now who they accuse of bankrolling some of this. Stuart Rhodes, mm-hmm. the Oathkeeper's founder. What's more, they have flipped an accused Oathkeeper. They have flipped one of Rhodes' co-defendants who's now cooperating with prosecutors. So if we see a new energy or a new open reference to the investigation of funding, it's because they're making progress and they've made significant progress now that they've charged somebody. Bob. So,
3: real quick, Scott, if you said there are 770 cases about? How many people, though, were actually in the Capitol that day? So what percentage of those who
2: were uh, inside? Trevor has
1: arrived. Lunch is here. Keep going, Bob. No, it, it, it's a great question. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a majority uh, based on a rough look at it, but there are a number of people, by the dozens, charged. Was it about who- like
3: 1,000 people, though, who were inside the Capitol? Do we know?
1: The initial estimate from the then-Acting Capitol Police chief initially was that there were about 800 oh, inside wow. the Capitol. Unlawfully, so unlawfully 770 inside. out of 800. But a good number of those 770 are people who never stepped foot inside. You've got, for example, Gentlemen uh, and, and ladies who were outside the building but were committing crimes. You've got a couple defendants accused specifically of assaulting Capitol Officer Brian Sicknick, who we referenced, who are not accused of actually getting in the Capitol, but are accused of committing a crime Assault outside. Outside, right? So the ceiling is higher. If that's where you're going with this, the ceiling is significantly higher than 770. In fact, the Department of Justice is saying there are dozens, if not hundreds, more people they're searching for.
2: You know, and this audience is a self-selecting audience. It nerds out like I. Do nerd out uh we are here together to do that so here's a nerdy question that comes sometime comes up and i want to get some clarity on it for our audience's benefit and plenty of republicans tell me this so i know they tell you and they very probably will tell you this too bob well you know this committee has problems it's created by the speaker it's not created by a harmonious allocation of authority through the house of representatives republicans rejected republican choices rejected. rejected exactly Therefore, it has a questionable legitimacy. Now, the courts have ruled on this, but to the
1: minds of some, that taints it in somehow. Walk my audience through that a little bit. Yeah, Scott. and I think Republicans are going to do that when the final work product is issued. They're going to remind their constituents and remind Americans that this was an Unorthodox composition of a committee and an unorthodox process. But I'll tell you what's unorthodox to me. When I go to these hearings and, I, and these business meetings and I watch these members of this committee, it's unlike any other congressional committee I've ever watched. They choreograph t- to a person, they work collaboratively. There's not this like back and forth rhythm that you get from traditional dueling party committees. The, the, the business meetings have this unique, like almost Design to how they function. That's not how congressional committees function. It's a warring, nonsensical, um, c- a claustrophobic type of way where they're all battling with each other in close proximity. It just feels different. Feels different. But
2: it is still a product of the House. It has investigatory powers. Those powers have been tested by the courts, and the courts have ruled because the underlying question is of such gravity. This committee is legitimate.
3: And and look. When people come in to to testify before this committee and offer depositions, they're under oath you can't lie to Congress. So even if you don't like the composition of the committee, they should be telling the truth if they're speaking to congressional representatives. So that's the value here is they have subpoena power to bring people in to tell the truth.
2: Yeah, and lots of people have gone before the committee and we'll go into that when we come back. Lunch has arrived. We're happy about that. Trevor has met all of his obligations to us and more. It looks really good. (laughs) Scott McFarlane, Bob Costa, I'm Major Garrett. Segment four of The Takeout and a deep, continuing our deep dive into everything I can think of off the top of my head and in the deep recesses of my memory about January 6th and the process unfolding before us. I'm Major Garrett, segment four of The Takeout in just one second.
0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
3: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Chef Jeff's is our host restaurant. Lunch has arrived. We're very happy about that. Bob Costa, Scott McFarland are our guests. Um, So what else is happening on Capitol Hill? We've talked about this at great length is there anything else that is driving the news cycle is topical it's, just, yeah. it's and i asked that because i already know one answer in the not too distant future america is going to see something it has never seen before an african-american woman added to the u.s supreme court and if it weren't for the Ukraine story, I think it would be the dominant story in Washington.
1: And a couple other things, too. And yes. I think it's, it's not just Ukraine blocking out the sun of other news. but And, and this is relevant to your question. The gas prices mm-hmm. and what people pay at the grocery store on Saturday mornings is transcendently important in this moment in time. And I think the House leadership might want to find a way to get more active in that space or get caught trying on this. <clears throat> because this is a visceral thing for people of all backgrounds in every part of the country. And right now, they just don't wear it as an issue, as as a badge of honor. And I feel like like the House leadership might want to find a way to do that soon. Has that also struck you, Bob, the lack of focus on that issue, which is, as
2: Scott just very clearly said, conversational, impactful, relevant to everyone in America?
3: Right. I, I mean, Republicans and Democrats in Congress would argue the point and say they're focused intently on it it's just not in the news i mean the democrats are highly aware that the majority's on the line any time you have lunch or coffee with a house democrat they're not necessarily talking about ukraine they're talking about how they they did the american survival. rescue plan and infrastructure to try to help american people even if there's rising inflation and shortages due to the war and other issues and republicans are laser focused it seems on highlighting these issues so look What's happening is that the news may be dominated by Ukraine, but the midterms are almost, if you look at race after race being driven by domestic issues.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Here's something I want to ask both of you What do you think is the current and projectable strength of former President Trump over the Republican
1: Party? I feel like George is going to speak to that really loudly and Georgia. profoundly the yeah. Georgia gubernatorial mm-hmm. primary where he has and even the, the primary for secretary of state as well That's right where he's not just you know endorsed he's put muscle into it he's leaned into it and let's see what the outcome of that is before we measure his impact moving forward in an electoral cycle uh, i feel like he's particularly good at picking the likely winners right um as his endorsement choice but let's see the force of that before we measure what his force is likely to be in year two and year three of the biden administration
2: and we all know that there is a tactical shrewdness that mitch mcconnell the senate republican leader brings to legislative politics we also know there is a hardball shrewdness he brings to senate politics electoral politics state by state by state bob you know this very well, well i know it very well yeah, sure i mean what's look, his take
3: well look at what happened in alabama Trump's endorsed candidate, Congressman Mo Brooks. He walks away from Mo Brooks, disavows his own endorsement. Brooks had slipped. So Trump's political capital wasn't enough to carry Brooks across the finish line. Trump blamed Brooks uh, for having his candidacy kind of fizzle. But you would think in a red state like Alabama, the Trump endorsement might be more than enough to carry someone across the primary finish line. And now you see two candidates who are a little bit more favored by the McConnell uh, wing, uh, Durant and Katie Boyd-Britt, they're getting some traction in the Alabama race. I agree with Scott. The Georgia primary—if mm-hmm. if, if Purdue can't win, former Senator David Purdue against incumbent Governor Brian Kemp—you know that's a a mark against Trump. But so often Trump, he can lose primaries, but his standing with the base is almost unaffected mm-hmm. uh, by his win or loss record in these primaries. It's embarrassing for him politically, perhaps, but. He doesn't seem to lose too much of the luster with the core voters.
2: And Scott, in your conversations with Republicans about the underlying dispute that former President Trump will never give up, which is somehow the 2020 election was stolen from him, it was not, it was not, it was not. How many Republicans say they know that to be true, but they still have to sort of create some kind of political proximity to Trump on that, talking about election integrity or some other buzzwords when they know
1: in their heart of hearts that the 2020 election was legit? It's so difficult to discern that. But when you ask the question, what stood out to me is day four of Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings, which is the day that nobody pays attention to. It's this line of outside witnesses to come in. They get five minutes to talk, and they cycle through them. And it's almost um, kind of run through the run through the steps and get go through the motions.
2: of an assembly line thing. Assembly
1: line. And then there's the Alabama attorney general who is there invited by the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee to give his thoughts. And one of the senators, Senator um, Whitehouse of Rhode Island, decides to ask the Alabama attorney general, is Joe Biden the lawfully and duly elected president of the United States? And the Alabama attorney general would not give a straight answer. He kept saying, Joe Biden is the president. So White House counterpunches. Are you saying he's duly and rightfully elected? And the attorney general goes, he's the president. And they have this back and forth in this public forum. And that goes a bit viral. And that's where we are. Where statewide officials and some federal lawmakers who are interested in primaries for higher office or for their own survival are still saying things like that. How much does that surprise you, Bob?
3: I've been covering the Republican base in uh, the GOP for over 10 years. It doesn't surprise me. This is the, there's a belief that Trump was stoking long before the election day that the election was going to be rigged and stolen, his words. He created a grievance campaign stating this without evidence. And then this became the rally cry after the election that he lost, and it became a legal campaign in the courts. Once they failed in the courts, they tried to block the certification. And when that fails, you see a mob storms the U.S. Capitol. So it's not surprising, per se. And this is someone—Donald Trump is someone I've, I've known since 2011. And I always remember interviewing him over the years, and the thing that irritated him more than anything was when the crowd size was depicted as smaller than he imagined it or believed it to be. And so his perception of himself and his reputation as a winner, as a, the, the leader of the crowd, as the favorite— if he, he can't stand on a personal level, based on my report and the idea that he lost, so anything to cover a defeat with, with a supposed fraud or whatever, that plays to his aim of being seen as the winner. And he keeps claiming falsely that he's won twice.
1: Yeah. Scott, uh, round aside, you got about 30 seconds. Um, let me give you one quick aside. Sure. Monday night, the January 6th committee met to approve this uh, contempt of Congress referral for two Trump aides. And two members of the committee said the Justice Department has to step up and start doing its job and hold more people accountable. That satisfied a lot of Americans who think 15 months later there hasn't been accountability.
2: That is voice of Scott McFarlane. The other voice you heard was Bob Costa. They are my distinguished colleagues at CBS News. As I said before, they are ace reporters, some of the best. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For our... Audience on CBS News streaming and on the podcast platform, stick with us for the takeout outtake special. As I said, Ukraine has been our most recent focus. We'll get back to it next week, but I think you'll agree with me. This is a heavyweight topic, and we had two of the best people imaginable work us through it. I'm Major get. We'll see you next week.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Chef Jeff's is our host restaurant. Glad to be here. Glad to have lunch. Bob Costa, Scott McFarlane are our guests. So you know this is the fun and game portion of the program, gentlemen. So have some fun. Have some games. And you probably are, by this term, aware of the three threshold questions. Nice. Most savvy people by this time in Washington, D.C. are, or they ought to be, for goodness sake. So the three threshold questions are, take them in whatever order you prefer. Scott, we'll start with you. Nice. Most influential book in your life? All-time favorite movie? You're on a long flight or a long drive? What kind of music,
1: artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? All-time favorite book because my wife's a history teacher and we bonded over David Halberstam's The 50s. Didn't recognize the pivotal nature of that decade. And from Towns to uh, Betty Friedan and all, and, and all these things that happened in that decade that my parents Levitt Town, America's first suburb and planned community. That's right. And, That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. and I, I found it fascinating. It was one book she and I could share because when I read the next Bob Costa book, she wants to talk about history. But when I read a history book, she wants to talk about what I just read.
2: Or the next Major Garrett book. Or the next Major Garrett book. Out in late
1: September, books. by the way. We'll talk about more of that in the future. Yeah. Best movie. movie ever, Beverly Hills Cop. There's no <laughs> second place. And it's... Bogamel. It's a lost art. You mix incredible drama and thriller with funny as hell. Yeah. You don't see that. You don't see that very it's often. You don't see it anymore in movies. It's a damn good movie. No and I doubt. used to be a nineties R and B DJ, so that's my only only music. Only music? Okay. Still.
2: And did you have a DJ name? Scotty Mac There you go. Scotty Mac Not yeah. doesn't doesn't really rate a ten on the originality scale, no, but I'll go with it. It's you know, easy, yeah. easy to spell. Easy to spell. Bob Costa. Favorite
3: uh, book that I guess the most influential was a book called "The Prayer for the City." It's by Buzz Bissinger, and it's Mm -hmm. a narrative nonfiction book that really captured my interest in politics and documenting in a a vivid, detailed way how power works. And I think a runner-up would be Robert Caro's series on LBJ. Mm -hmm. But Bissinger's book, because I grew up in the Philadelphia area when Ed Rendell was mayor, this book follows Ed Rendell when he's mayor of Philadelphia, later became DNC chairman and governor of Pennsylvania. It just captures how power really works. It's transactional. It's unpredictable. It's often uh, not full of glamour and television. It's behind the scenes. And that book is just a powerful book. It it's probably uh, deserves more attention in the pantheon of political books, A Prayer for the City. Favorite film, I know you're a Godfather fan. I would say Godfather Part 2 mm-hmm. is my favorite. I think the interactions between Michael Corleone and, and Hyman Roth in that film, it, again, a film really about power and family. Mm-hmm. That it, it's, a, it's a political movie, I would argue. Same with Godfather Part 1 and, and 3. Uh, and
2: This is the business we've chosen.
1: This
3: is the business we've chosen. and it's, it's it, That it, it line rings.
2: encompasses so much of humanity and inhumanity. That's right. So, favorite book, favorite movie, and what else? Music. Of
3: course. Well, I started out as a music journalist when I was 16 years old. Um, I wrote concert reviews. It was a way for, The way I got into journalism was to get dates. So, music companies would give me <laughs> two free concert tickets and a photo pass so I could take out girls who were out of my league when I was a teenager. And because I worked for the local paper, they all thought I was 40 years old. I was 17. I got to interview Counting Crows, Grateful Dead, John Mayer, Dave Matthews' band... Favorite music? I, I you know, I've always been a Dave Matthews Band fan, mm-hmm. and I've loved those concerts. Uh, Love the Grateful Dead. Love the band Fish. Um, that, that's kind of my go-to genre of music. Uh, very much a '90s, early
2: 2000s kid. Wow, that that is a clever racket you had. I mean, that's really good. I mean, write music reviews yes. and then make sure you could bring a date.
3: That's right. And the, I would often have, I would say to a a young woman in my high school class, would you like to be the photographer for this story for our local paper? And so they would get the photo pass. (laughs) So look, it wasn't... How many of those photos were ever published? They were published. They were published. This was all in the up and up. But I I, I laugh looking back that so many of these record companies thought, you know, Robert Costa with the Bucks County Courier Times, he must be an older gentleman. (laughs) And his formal emails (laughs) requesting concert coverage.
2: I was 17. (laughs) That's a hell of a racket. That is really good. Um, And is there any music that predates that era that you're fond of?
3: Sure. I mean, I'm a big fan of 70s rock. A band that I'm really into now is called the Tedeschi Trucks Band. Mm -hmm. Derek Trucks is the guitarist. Uh, He comes from the Butch Trucks family, the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, So that kind of southern rock I've always really enjoyed. Southern rock. Grateful Dead style rock that is very much a live music oriented, guitar driven rock music. That's always been something I've Say been very into. Say that band's
2: name one more time.
3: Uh, Ted- Tedeschi Trucks.
2: Yeah. Okay. Sirius XM uh, listeners, uh, you won't even find that on Deep Tracks. Okay, <laughs> I'm telling you, that's some archaeological stuff that Bob Costa just went through. Um, Scott McFarlane, Before we let you
1: go, um, what do you love about Congress? Oh, I love how it represents America. There are people in Congress who very much encapsulate their district. You get to see America when you walk through the hallways. You get to see Southeast Ohio. You get to see Midtown Manhattan. You get to see Hollywood. And you get to see Helena, Montana. Love it. That's
2: exactly right. I'm angry right. at
1: myself. I didn't use the same scheme Bob used in high school. <laughs> we all are now. i myself for weeks about that. <laughs> we all are now. We're all pikers next to Bob Costa, no
2: doubt. In more ways than one. I'm Major Garrett Bob Costa, Scott McFarland. Thanks for hanging out. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for hanging out The Takeout. See ya. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson,
3: Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.
2: If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
4: It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
1: The Hargan women seem to have
4: it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.
2: But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household.
4: Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering.
1: I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker The Hargan Family Killings wherever you get your podcasts.